Attention, your attention please. The following podcast contains spoilers. If you haven't seen the film yet, then do not continue listening. Thank you. Welcome to the Brothers Grimmer. I'm Alberto. I'm in New York. I'm Francisco. I'm in Chicago. We are two brothers reconnecting through our mutual love of horror movies. And in this episode, we are going to be reviewing Krampus. Before we get to our summary, I'm curious, what did you think of today's movie? I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a real surprise. I have to say that I tried to go see it in the movie theater two years ago uh, when it opened up the same month as The Force Awakens, December of 2015. It came and left theaters so quickly that I didn't get a chance to. So I really regretted that. I ended up having to catch it on Blu-ray. And so did you watch on your flat screen or on your... I did. I watched it on my flat screen and uh, Stephen and I have an amazing sound system. It's something that we'll talk a little bit about in our review, but the sound effects are so incredibly atmospheric and enveloping. It's a great way to watch it, actually, to watch it at home if you've got a nice sound system. I listened to it with the headphones you gifted me, Ah. and I agree, the sound effects were great, and I saw it on my laptop. I also missed it when it was in the theaters, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I have some issues with it, but I really enjoyed it, and I kept on thinking, how is this movie not a big hit? I think it was a moderate hit. It got terrible reviews. After watching it, I looked up its Metacritic store, and it's not very good. I think it's uh, like a 49. Oh, yikes. I had no idea it was that bad. I think Rotten Tomatoes is at somewhere like 65, which is middling or mixed. But I never expect horror movies of this variety to get sensationally great reviews. They either need to be very arthouse and very oblique, or they need to be crowd pleasers. This is kind of a unique niche. So it got a 49 on Metacritic. And just out of curiosity, I wanted to see what Gremlins got. (laughs) Gremlins was a 70 on Metacritic. See, crowd pleaser. And I see them very similarly... Gremlins and this film. And this film, exactly, in terms of its tone, its mix of humor. Do you want to provide a short synopsis for the listeners? Sure, I can give it a try. The film we're reviewing is Krampus. It's a 2015 holiday horror movie. It's a tight 98 minutes. I love a short horror movie. Directed by Michael Dougherty. The film starts three days before Christmas, revolving around the Engel family, each of which are approaching the holiday in some level of resignation, despair, or complete depression. The dad, Tom Engel, is played by Adam Scott. The mom, Sarah Engel, is played by Tony Collette. They have two kids. Beth is the elder. She's a teenager in high school, and Max is the younger, probably in junior high. They're not a rotten or evil family. I feel like a lot of reviews that I read were like, they're totally obnoxious. They get everything they deserve. 
I disagree completely. <laughs> I found them incredibly relatable. I have to say, uh, God, Christmas is my least favorite holiday. I think it's for many people. I've spent so many bad Christmases since I left New York. I find it absolutely the most depressing holiday of the year. It's a great holiday for kids. It is great for kids, and it also depends on how invested into your family you are. Otherwise, it is a chore. And more. <laughs> There's so much baggage that comes with this holiday. And nobody in this family, mom and dad, the two kids, older sister and younger brother, nobody's evil or bad. They're just distracted and exhausted and focusing their energies on other things. <laughs> I found I found a pretty reasonable family portrait. But that's what I was going to use. I also found it reasonable. I found them to be a reasonable family. They live in a very nice upper middle class possibly upper-class home, along with Adam Scott's mother, who is an Austrian-German woman who speaks only in German. Mostly. Mostly, except for one critical scene late in the film. They call her Omi. Omi, yes. They are waiting for a visit from Tony Collette's sister, Linda, and her husband, Howard. And they're four kind of unpleasant children, they're kind of a trailer trashy family. They're very brash. They're very loud. They're very vulgar. They're very outspoken, especially about their politics and their love of sports. They are NRA members. They bring a surprise guest, which is their Aunt Dorothy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who nobody wanted to see. <laughs> Who's Conchata Pharrell. Most people would know her from uh, Two and a Half Men. I've never seen that show. She plays the same sort of cranky, obnoxious character on that. She's uh, irascible, she's hard drinking, and she has no filter. Christ on a stick, would it kill you to shovel your walk? I could have broken a hip out there. Oh, yeah, Dorothy, it's so great to see you. Yeah, well, your sister's no Mother Teresa, but at least she swings by every once in a while to make sure that I'm not dead. So where's the dog? I need to get Mary. The film starts out very clearly as a holiday film, two halves of a family coming together. The youngest son, who is stubbornly holding on to his belief of Santa Claus. Although he says it's for the younger kids. He wants to protect that idea for the younger kids. I love that. I, lo I love that he, he's putting a brave face on it, but he knows that he's too old for it. Finally confronted with a very unpleasant family dinner, he loses all of his holiday spirit. He's probably the only person in the family who is still hopefully holding on to this last bit of Yuletide cheer. He rips up his letter to Santa, which, bless him, he's not actually asking for any presents. He's just asking for his family to be happy and reunited, and even asking for things for his kind of hated aunt and uncle and mean cousins. He rips up that letter. It gets blown up in a magical wind and taken to Krampus, who begins to send his minions to find and punish the family. All under the cloak of a tremendous snowstorm. Correct. The entire family becomes isolated in the house in this blizzard that seems to encompass everything and they lose all electricity. They seem to be shunted off into their own little dimension. 
and the visitations by these uh, spirits, demons really, become increasingly violent until it becomes clear that each family member is basically killed or dragged to hell. pretty much a synopsis i think <laughs> that's right i agree <laughs> i enjoyed the movie i think i'd give it a b what what rating would you give it oh i gave it a solid a an a from the moment the film begins with the slow motion black friday nightmare of the doorbusters doorbusters people stampeding in slow motion to bing crosby I thought it was brilliant. I, I, I thought it was capturing something about the holiday that genuinely I hadn't seen before. When I went back to look at the critics, I, was, I wanted to see what the gist of the criticisms were, and they said that it's neither scary nor funny. I was laughing. And I understand <laughs> what they're saying. So there are some big misses, I think. Okay. But in that title sequence, I laughed out loud a few times. And the times I reacted well were when the director slash writer made some innovative choices. It won me over, but I found that my issue with the movie is that there were some tremendously great real moments, real being funny or scary or touching, mixed in with a bunch of really lazy cookie-cutter scenes. Luckily, I thought the real moments uh, won out. Yeah. But there's a weird mix. The segment with the doorbusters could have been just like, oh, yeah, I know what they're going to do. But there were some surprises. Like, it was so extreme in one instance where the security guards are tasering these very <laughs> middle-class-looking parents who are sprawled out on the floor shaking. And it's done not gruesomely. It's done for comic effect, but it's really effective and funny. And so in the same title sequence, the family's introduced while they're watching a pageant, and there's a fight on stage. And before you understand what's going on, it's just hilarious to see that everyone in the audience has their camera focused on and uh, recording the fight on their cameras. <laughs> um, and so it's these moments where it's like c catches you by surprise because they're real and that won me over very quickly uh, during the title sequence. Those images are, I want to say that they're they're heightened, but there's still just enough reality to them to make them very identifiable. And they're skewering some very real behavior out there. Yeah. yeah. As the film continues, when they show the family getting home from that disastrous pageant at the mall, I love the family dynamic. I actually really enjoyed the dialogue between mom and dad, played by Adam Scott and Tony Collette, and their kids. There is a bit of uh, unfiltered honesty that feels very real to contemporary parents and their kids. They seem like real parents. Dad, Tom, is a workaholic, and he is taking phone calls from work and pouring booze into a coffee cup in his den and drinking by himself. And Tony Collette is an exhausted mom who is entirely focused on making the house look nice. She's worried about making everything look like a Martha Stewart Christmas. At the same time, her dialogue with her son is angrily, what were you thinking getting into this fight? But the issue is not that he got into the fight. It's that the kid was so obviously bigger than him that he had no chance of winning. I love that. 
I love that she shares with her daughter her hatred of the visiting family that she thinks that there should be a test for people to breed. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so mean-spirited, but honest. (laughs) That, uh, yeah, I I really liked their family dynamic. Last year, I found shit in my bed, Mom. Human shit. For the last time, that was their dog. They're why some people shouldn't be allowed to breed. Your words, Mom, not mine. I never said that. Maybe they should have to take a test before they're allowed to breed. Do you think you found it to be a rational family because it's similar to ours on some level? That we had a workaholic dad. Our mom was very image conscious. Um, you have a very attractive older sibling, and <laughs> <laughs> and, and to be fair, also uh, in our household. The cruel, mean-spirited comment carried a lot of weight. That had a lot of coin in our family. It was appreciated, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was deeply appreciated. And the nasty chuckle from the cruel observation, ah, that went a long, long way. (laughs) That garnered respect at our dinner tables. So, so yeah, yeah, actually, it does remind me of our family. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's a lot of class warfare type humor. Between the visiting family and the host family, absolutely. But it reminded me of National Lampoon's Vacation. Oh, yeah. It's that same sort of humor. But again, I thought, here's where I thought it was lazy. So they're pointing out the uncle is a part of the NRA, which is that I understand, but he also ridicules the Eagle Scouts. And I'm thinking, that doesn't make sense. This super hyper-conservative, gun-toting person would not be against the Eagle Scouts. Well, he's not exactly against them as much as I think that he is mocking the fact that Adam Scott never served in the military and that his survivalist skills, even before they're called into use, are weak comparatively to his own. It's a lot of macho swagger. It is. I mean, that same uh, where he reveals his distaste for the Eagle Scouts as as, uh, people who just weave baskets. He also joyfully applauds his son for burping at the table. my boy that's my boy it sure is i it didn't ring true to me yeah the host family the engels uh mom and dad uh max and beth and grandma feel a lot more real yep uh and the visiting family howard and linda their four kids and aunt dorothy they're much more like caricatures absolutely they're they're definitely a lot more for comic relief and to that end they were not that funny to me. I don't mind them not being real, and I don't mind them being comic relief characters. I wish they, their jokes had been better written. And, for example, when Aunt Dorothy comes in, she looks around and she says, looks like Martha Stewart threw up in here. The producers or the director must love that line because it's in the trailer, it's in the movie. <laughs> uh, I, I, I saw it referenced somewhere else. It's such a lazy line. It doesn't seem, It doesn't pack a wallop. Yeah, it's uninspired, and it's definitely not something that they coined. Yeah. So that feels tired, and yeah, I agree, lazy. But Howard and Linda both soften, and they both get a decent arc of becoming more human before the end of the film. 
Absolutely. They become a lot less caricaturish by the time the film ends and in their own way, a lot more relatable and actually kind of Linda, especially kind of lovable. Both of them, I think both uh, the uncle and aunt are are humanized. Yeah, but they're also endearing at the end. Absolutely. You will be visited by three spirits. What? Was that the chance of hope? That you mentioned, Chicken? It was. In that case, never mind. I think I'd rather not. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first when the bell tolls one. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about the film. I mean, the, the structure is, it reminds me a lot of Christmas Carol. And ironically, Grandma is watching the Alistair Sim Christmas Carol at the beginning, the best Christmas Carol, uh, best, best black and white Christmas Carol out there. And I think it sets the mood perfectly. What a great choice. You know, you go through this title uh, montage, and then it segues into they're watching the, the Christmas Carol on TV, and, and specifically where the ghosts are being introduced. Mm-hmm. And it's eerie. Yeah. And the tone is set, and it's so effective. I completely agree. Everyone uh, has in mind retro 80s horror films, especially ones that use a lot of puppet work like Gremlins, The Dark Crystal. Puppet Master. Oh, Puppet Master. <laughs> yes, that's right. But uh, overall, the f- the film doesn't really remind me of Gremlins. It reminds me more than anything of a really dark version of uh, Christmas Carol, which is already fairly dark to begin with. It reminded me of a bunch of movies. Gremlins, which I never really associated Gremlins as a holiday movie, even though many people do. Do you think of Gremlins as a Christmas movie? Only because of Phoebe Cates' tragic monologue about her father snapping his neck in the chimney in a Santa Claus costume. I think many people consider it, not just for that, but if you think about it, the whole movie takes place during Christmas. For me, it was a background thing. I think for others, it's a central motif throughout the movie that it's taking place during Christmas. But I I agree. For me, it's not a Christmas movie, and I was wondering if it was for you too, and it doesn't seem to be. Not really, no. This is a Christmas movie. This is entirely about the holiday. And I can imagine that there are probably people who are saying, oh, this is an extension of the war on Christmas, and I don't think it is. I I think it's really thoughtful in what it has to say and its observations about what Christmas really is right now, for a lot of people at least. This is not necessarily the most joyful time. I agree, but I I just want to get back to the movies that it reminded me of. Oh, yeah, please. And so Gremlins comes to mind, but also Time Bandits. Oh, yeah, that's a really good comparison. That whole gang of minions, there's a certain group of minions that are just like the the dwarves, the elves. See, I wish somehow the movie had been more direct that these were Sansa's elves. To be honest, I didn't put two and two together while I was watching it that these were evil elves. They just, because they were so many different, they're different, they look different, each one looks different from the other, they're not identical or, or similar looking like elves in most Christmas movies or, or TV shows. But that gang reminded me of the, the dwarves in Time Bandits, which you loved. I, I remember you loved Time Bandits. It fascinated me and frightened me. I found it very, very exciting. What a terrifying roller coaster ride that was. And Evil Dead is the other movie it reminded me of, when the gingerbread cookies are shooting the, the nail gun. Oh, yeah, that's, 
<laughs> God. Yeah, let's let's actually run run through the monsters of the movie. So so there's the gingerbread men who are animated evil cookies. And those are gremlin like things because they giggle and yeah, and they, chitter like the gremlins did. They talk in a squeaky voice that you you can barely understand them, but right. they're ridiculously cute and impish. But then they get a hold of a nail gun and then begin shooting Uncle Howard. To be honest, for me, they weren't... So let's run through them. But I have to say, at the outset, these uh, evil sidekicks of Krampus were not that effective. All right, well... I enjoyed looking at them. Uh, so so we have the gingerbread men. We have the elves, who are masked henchmen. It's interesting that we don't see their faces. They're all wearing these grotesque masks. Some of them look sort of demonish. Some of them look... Medieval. Medieval. Some of them look like dolls, sort of expressionless dolls. They're all very creepy looking. Their outfits look kind of medieval. They look like jesters. They're wearing lots of tattered clothing. The other group of henchmen are actual toys. There's a bag full of toys that later comes to life and includes a bunch of different things. There's like a mechanical robot that attacks Adam Scott. That's the thing that looks like Puppet Master, absolutely. That's stabbing him in the back. Exactly. There's a teddy bear. An evil-biting teddy bear that latches onto Aunt Linda. A jack-in-the-box. The first person that encounters it is the older teenage sister, Beth. When she's outside in the snow blizzard, she sees Krampus on a rooftop. And she sees Krampus's hooves from underneath the car that she's hiding under, and he leaves behind a tiny, tiny jack-in-the-box. And we see its head, its white enameled head, beginning to poke out slowly. And we hear her screaming. And we learn as the film goes on that this jack-in-the-box is devouring children and growing larger and larger until it's larger than human size. And it has a trick mouth, kind of like the predator, where you see many, many rows of teeth and its jaw becomes unhinged in several places. It's gruesome. It's a terrifying... That was the scariest of the henchmen. It's those dead black eyes and the the white porcelain face and the sense that kind of like the elves, it's it, there's something else underneath. It's wearing a mask. It's wearing a mask and the mask comes apart at the mouth and you see only that part of it and it's large and larval and you see the bodies of the children inside of it wriggling and uh yeah i I thought that was one of the more effective ones the remaining toy is the cherub which is kind of a cross between a christmas tree angel and an old-fashioned antique baby doll Mixed with a, like some sort of bird, right? With like a yeah, like a hawk or and like a owl, maybe or some predatory bird. It's kind of demented looking. I don't know how scary I found it. It attacks Tony Collette and sticks its tongue in her ear. It's gross. It's gross. <laughs> One of the cool things it does is, even though it's small, it's obviously very strong, and it wraps Christmas lights around her neck and tries to hang her from a rafter in the attic. So that was kind of cool. So just for people who are listening in, all these effects were done, for the most part, mechanically. Absolutely. Practical, physical effects. And it makes a huge difference. Even though I wasn't frightened by these things, for the most part, I didn't find them boring. So when I go to see, I know this is going to rub people the wrong way, but when I see a Marvel movie 
and there's all these fight scenes where uh, superheroes are, are hurling things at one another, and I'm thinking, and this is all CGI. I just get bored. It means nothing. It's it's not real. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> but he, but here I it. Even though I wasn't frightened, I was curious to see how they did everything, how everything looked, how everything was designed and made. You can't help but be impressed with their creativity. Exactly. And the jack-in-the-box and the cherub were very creepy looking. I have to, I mean, like, they they gave me, the jack-in-the-box especially gave me chills. The last creature, the last monster is Krampus himself. Wait, no, there's one more. There's oh, the There's the thing that keeps sucking everyone under the snow. Oh, you're right. You're right. It's sort of like a Tremors type uh, deal or uh, Blood Beach. You know, it's, it's, exactly. it's the thing underneath the quicksand. It's the thing underneath the snowdrifts that bites people. Uh, Uncle Howard gets bitten rather badly. He has a really gruesome leg wound that we see later. That thing claims all of the parents. Can we go back to the introduction of Krampus? One of the things that really won me over is early on in the movie, there's a death. Beth goes out to find her boyfriend. You described the scene with the -the jack-in-the-box, and so there's a real consequence. This is, even though it's tongue-in-cheek in in parts and atmospheric, that initial scene lets the audience know things are really going to happen here. It's not just just superficial. This is is serious. Yeah, that sets the stakes. Beth doesn't come back. But before that moment is where we first glimpse Krampus, and I think it's one of the better scenes in the movie. She's out in the middle of a deserted, slightly plowed road. Everything's covered in snow and frozen. She sees Krampus, and we see Krampus for the first time. I'll let you describe him, but he's on a on the roof of a, one of these suburban houses, and then he leaps to another and, not, and another while it's pursuing her. And... That was CGI, and I think I'm going to contradict myself a little bit, but <laughs> that CGI mixed with the fact that later we see Krampus in in a, in a real mechanical way was really perfectly done, I think. I thought it was a beautiful moment. It's one of my favorite moments of the movie. The sound effects, especially of uh, the sound of Krampus leaping and the sounds of heavy chains that are on him clattering, as well as the wind and the snowstorm, I thought that was a fantastic scene. It's interesting because the first few scenes that we see of him are him in silhouette, and he is this gigantic hunched creature in a tattered, fur-lined red robe. He seems to have all the trappings of Santa Claus, except, of course, he's covered in chains and kind of like the elves and rather like the -the jack-in-the-box. He is wearing a mask. He's wearing this old dead man's face, this gray face. We never actually see Krampus's face. We see his eyes moving underneath this sort of inarticulate mask that looks like the scream. 
See, that was an issue for me when I didn't realize they do do a close-up of uh, the eyes, and I guess that's where it becomes clear, but it wasn't clear enough for me. So while I'm watching the scenes where you find, near the end of the movie where you finally see Under the Hood, I was disappointed because it is immobile. It is a dead man's screaming face, but the scream is frozen. The face is frozen. Yeah. And I think it was not effective for me. I would have preferred a more anim- something more animated and uh, and sinister underneath. I would agree. They clearly designed the hell out of this character, and we see his giant goat hooves. He's got long, clawed fingers. I think the creators know what's underneath that mask, and it would have been nice if they had shown it. The silhouette really reminded me of Jim Henson's Creatures from the Dark Crystal, the Skeksis. They're the evil overlords of the Crystal Palace, and they have these gigantic, elaborate, hunched outfits that are all this sort of tattered finery. It reminded me a lot of that. It did remind me of something Muppet-like or Henson-like. Yeah. And so I thought it needed a little bit more gruesomeness Yeah. to offset that, oh, it's a Muppet. On the growing jack-in-the-box... The mouth, it reminded me a little bit of the the snakes in Tremors. I think you mean the Graboids? The Graboids. In Tremors? <laughs> in Tremors. The snakes. What That's, did I call them? Graboids. The I'm snakes. sorry. <laughs> Where you had something cute, but then you have something really gross with, you know, with s- uh, saliva and, mm-hmm. uh, and those jagged, really gross teeth. So there they managed to, I think, have a good balance between something that was Muppet-like with something more gruesome, and I think it was missing in the in Krampus. I agree with you completely. I like this director. I, I really appreciate what he's trying to do, but this is a running complaint that I have about him from his previous film, which is called Trick or Treat. Did you happen to have a chance to see it? I did. I did see it. So he's very fond of practical effects, and similarly, in his 2007 anthology horror movie, He has a lot of latex rubber effects, especially in the middle story of the movie where these werewolf women rip off their skins and reveal themselves. And kind of like the American werewolf in London, it is a scene that the camera really tarries on. It really uh, lingers on these shots. All I kept on looking at were these incredibly well-sculpted latex creations that were fairly well-articulated, but the camera lingers on them for so long that after a while I think to myself, okay, I'm just looking at a plastic dummy. Agreed. And that's kind of how I felt about Krampus as well. He falls in love with uh, having his camera linger too long on what are admittedly great, great creations, but especially in this day of... HD and Blu-ray, those kinds of creations are not treated kindly. Those kinds of special effects, the longer you linger on them, the more that their machinery becomes apparent and the less scary they become. And you can just be sort of impressed like, oh, someone worked really hard on that. But it loses the scare factor. I agree completely. Trick or Treat, I think, had a lot of great ideas in it. And possibly my most favorite part of it was the film's mascot, Sam, who is really an iconic new horror creation, uh, and I would want to see more of. That's the burlap? 
Yeah, it's a child-sized monster that's disguised in a costume that makes it look like a dirty, shabby little trick-or-treater wearing these onesie pajamas and a burlap sack covering its head with button eyes. It's sort of a cross between a scarecrow and David Cronenberg serial killer from Nightbreed. Wasn't there an animated movie that has a similar character? All the characters look similar. Director Michael Dougherty did a horror movie, uh, or rather an, a, a, an animated horror short that stars Sam. Okay. And it has this really great retro vibe to it. I think he was an art school graduate. I think he's a graphic artist himself. When I read up on the director, it seems like his big breaks came as a writer for Superman Returns. I liked it. And X-Men 2. I loved it. And so I think these movies were his reward for writing these blockbuster movies, which confused me even more that it's so visually beautiful. And there are, again, moments of great sincerity, but there's so many lazy moments in terms of the writing. I agree. That I was surprised that his fame comes because of his writing. What's great in Trick or Treat are the ideas. There are some great ideas in Krampus. There's definitely better writing in Krampus. I think... Agreed. Trick or Treat's not that memorable. I, it was interesting to see that there are certain images or motifs that he likes. So the group of elves, there's a similar group in Trick or Treat of the dead. You're talking about the school bus massacre? Yes, in the school bus massacre, the ghosts of the children resemble the elves in Krampus. They are very similar looking. Yeah. Actually, I thought they were scarier in the school bus massacre. Agreed. Those homemade papier-mâché Halloween masks on the faces of these silent, disturbed children, I thought was actually fairly scary. Yep, agreed. I don't know if it's a topic of conversation, but we recently reviewed Black Christmas, which is a holiday horror movie with a slasher, and here we're reviewing a holiday horror movie, but instead of a, a human villain, we have a supernatural villain. Which one was scarier? Oh, Black Christmas, absolutely. I, I'm in agreement with John Carpenter. Uh, the things that people do to each other is scarier than any supernatural thing. What about for you? I think they both had really effective endings. Excellent. The end of Black Christmas is really a punch in the gut. Mm -hmm. Even though it's so beautiful, uh, we talked about how well choreographed that ending is, the resulting climactic scene has so much power to it but um i thought the ending of krampus was really effective do you want to talk about it sure sure let's talk a little bit about it so leading up to the ending the grandmother has this really nice sequence where she speaks in english and she tells the family that's under siege in the house that she has encountered Krampus once before, and there is a flashback. It's nicely done as a combination of stop motion and uh, animation that recalls her childhood in a war-torn Europe where her family and the other villagers were sent to hell by Krampus, and she alone was spared and was given a little ugly iron bell of a Christmas ornament. She faces off against Krampus and gets sucked into his bag of demonic toys. Mom and dad 
and Aunt Linda gets sucked under the snow by whatever that biting creature is that's devouring everyone. A snow shark. Snow shark. (laughs) Finally, everything is left down to Max and his cousin Stevie. Stevie is taken away by the demonic elves, and Max selflessly approaches Krampus, and Krampus gives him, similarly to his grandmother, that ugly iron bell of a Christmas ornament, and then turns his back on him. Seemingly, he is going to be the one who is spared. But Max is insistent. He throws himself at Krampus, begs him to spare his cousin's life. Please. I know you can fix this. Give them back. Take me instead. cousin thrown down into hell, then picks up Max and throws him down into hell as well. And then... And then, I was going to say, yes, and then... Max wakes up in his room, Christmas morning. And everybody's eyes roll to the back of their head in the theater with disgust (laughs) that this is just a dream. Ah, the most terrible of all endings. (laughs) He comes downstairs and finds his entire family alive and well, and they're all getting along. It's a happy Christmas. Grandma is pouring out hot chocolate. His sister, the first victim, is there. His aunt and uncle, all the victims are there, and they're all getting along wonderfully. They're passing around presents, opening them up, laughing, enjoying themselves. He is very out of sorts from his nightmare. But also relieved... He hugs his mom and dad, uh, and they're like, what is this for? And it's just like, oh, it's just Christmas. He's basking in this love. He gets past a box that has his name on it, and he opens it up, and inside is the ugly iron bell ornament from Krampus. With Krampus's name on it, yeah. Krampus's name is inscribed on it. He looks at it, realizing that it was not a dream, and then his parents catch sight of it, and his aunt and uncle and the other family members, and all the joy drains from the scene and from their faces. And they all remember everything that happened, and you realize that it all happened for real. And the camera starts to pull out and keeps pulling out. And we see the house, and it is inside of a snow globe. And as we pan out even further, we see that we are in Krampus's workroom, kind of like Santa Claus's workroom. But on every single shelf, on every surface, there are dozens, possibly hundreds, of snow globes with homes in them. And everyone's trapped. <laughs> Which would have been perfect. And then he goes one step too far and CGI demonic toys attack the screen and this and then it goes blank. You better not pout, I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. 
Yep, one final jump scare, which is very silly. This is a very tired trend in recent horror movies, in recent good horror movies. A lot of Bloomhouse-produced horror films end with this cliché. Sinister ends with this. Insidious ends with this. Really good films are sort of throwing away their final moment of dread and unease by throwing in one last cheap scare, I think in the hopes of making the audience laugh and not having everyone leave on a bummer. And maybe it's a good idea. You're right. You're absolutely right. So if it had just ended with the pan out and you realize, "Uh uh-oh, these people are trapped. And people who are trapped in a glass enclosure remind me of like Ex Machina, which had also a gut-wrenching ending where the hero is trapped In his case, you know he's going to starve to death. It's not so clear what's going to happen to those people in the snow globes. You assume they just kind of live Groundhog Day-type lives, which is not great. It's a really nauseating feeling that all these people are trapped. And if people just walked out the theater with that feeling, I wonder, is that a better way to leave a horror movie, or should you have a little chuckle at the end? I prefer the darker version. I mean, like, we're, we're back into Black Christmas territory. Yep. Uh, leaving the audience feeling that terrible sense of dread, I think is a lot more effective and chilling. And that's the kind of ending that's going to stay with me. Actually, I, I, I don't appreciate the, the last jump scare, but it doesn't ruin the film for me. No. I, I kind of understand the logistics of why they did it, but it feels kind of cheap after having earned some real feeling for these characters. There's one more thing I need to say, which is, there really are two ways of looking at that ending. There is a very hopeful way and a very cynical way. And I have to say that my reaction is, I think, similar to yours, which is the cynical way of looking at this as sort of one of the darker Twilight Zone twists, that they all perished, they've all been sent to hell, and their hell is being trapped in this Christmas day over and over again, remembering that terrible suffering that they were put through by the Krampus demon. So it's their souls that are trapped, really. Yeah. The second way of looking at it, which is the hopeful way of looking at it, which is, I think, perfectly viable, but was not my immediate reaction, is that they did everything right. None of these people are really, at the core, bad people. They're adrift, and they're focused on the wrong things, but when pressed to it, they do exactly what they're supposed to do, which is they rally. They come together as a family at the end, and Max does something that his grandmother did not do when she received her little Krampus ornament. He goes up against Krampus and says, I want to suffer the same fate, and by doing that and by committing that sacrifice, which his grandmother even at the beginning says that giving is about sacrifice. There's a way of looking at this that he rescues his family, and the snow globe is more like Krampus keeping an eye on them. Oh. This is his scrying pool. This is his magic crystal ball, and he is keeping an eye on them to make sure that they stay in line and don't let this happen again. He has taught them a lesson, like the ghosts of Christmas, past, present, and future, in A Christmas Carol, but they've gotten a reprieve. They're on thin ice, as many other people are. 
So I, I think that there's there's a cynical interpretation, which is my knee-jerk reaction. That was my interpretation as well. But there's a hopeful way of looking at this as well, and I'm totally at ease with both. Now that you've explained it, I didn't think of that one. It would explain, you know, that Krampus has done good for all these uh, those hundreds of snow globes means he's taught hundreds, thousands of people lessons, uh, which is, uh, I guess, a hopeful way to look at it. Honestly, for me, that last scene when the camera pulls out and you see the snow globes in like this kind of scary kind of workshop, like a lair. It's like a root cellar. Yeah, it looks like, yeah, it's scary looking. Well, it reminded me of the end of Jeepers Creepers, which is a terrifying ending. So uh, just by reference, the ending scared me to be in the dark lair of the murdering monster of the demon and the demon seems to have won. And Jeepers Creepers, the demon definitely won, but it's a kick in the stomach. I kind of like that. I kind of respect that. Yeah, agreed. One pro that we didn't discuss that I just want to bring up is like the acting. So these are all good actors. And although some of the dialogue isn't great, no one's phoning it in. I think the kids are great too. That's one of my main complaints about his first feature, Trick or Treat, is there were a lot of child actors and their performances... I thought were really uneven or just outright rotten. One could argue he wants to make a Halloween movie and he's genuinely making a Halloween movie and there's no escaping the child experience of trick-or-treaters and mean teenagers, but those kids were really not up to the task. I feel like the kids here, especially Max and his sister Beth, are great. Great, agreed. And the adults are all great. I think you're right. No matter what sort of dialogue they've been given, uh, no matter how whether the jokes fall flat or not, the adults are all giving it their all. The acting really pays off in the last scene where the parents are eaten by the snow shark. They're really distraught. They're sacrificing themselves for the kids. The kids are watching it. So the acting on, on every part, the kids and the parents, is really dramatic, as it should be in that situation. And it really plays kind of true and is effective. I'm so glad you liked it. <laughs> I really enjoyed it, and I really, and so I went back to see why was this movie not a bigger success? You tried to see it in the movie theaters, and it was in and out, and maybe it's achieved success in home video. And so I, out of curiosity, watched the trailer, and the trailer wasn't terrible. Just thinking, was that the reason people avoided it? And I don't think it was. So I'm not sure what the reason was. Me neither. This poor director doesn't really have a lot of luck. I don't know if you know the troubled history of his first feature, Trick or Treat. It was something that he filmed. It was produced by Brian Singer, with whom he worked on both the X-Men 2 and Superman Returns. But the studio that produced it shelved it for literally years. It didn't get released. And then it got a very, very limited release and then almost went straight to video where it became a cult hit. And actually, in a weird way, I think it might work better as a TV project than it does as a feature film. I think if I'd seen it in the movie theater, I think I'd I'd be fairly disappointed with it. Trick or Treat was rebroadcast really often on the now-defunct Fearnet horror channel before it they went out of business. And it was largely through that that it became a, a big cult hit. Uh, Michael Dougherty even came back because they were so fond of showing Trick or Treat on Fearnet that he filmed all these great funny bumpers with Sam, the demonic 
trick-or-treater. You can find these all on YouTube. It makes me sort of wish that there was uh, another trick-or-treat sequel, possibly more focused on Sam. Well, you're in luck. According to IMDb, Trick-or-Treat 2 has been announced. Ah, well, announced, but when will it be filmed? Michael Dougherty is the latest indie filmmaker to be hired to do a gigantic big blockbuster movie. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Yep. yep, a sequel to the Brian Cranston Godzilla from several years ago, which was a beautifully shot film that I thought was pretty good for the first third and then completely lost me because the human characters were, uh, after Brian Cranston passes away, are completely wooden and lifeless. I missed it. Yeah, it's worth a rental. Unlike the Hank Azaria uh, Godzilla. I saw that in the movie theater. Did you see it? I was dying to see it, and somehow I didn't, I think because the reviews were so terrible, and I just didn't want to waste my time, but then I caught it on TV, and it just seemed terrible. It was awful, but I have to say, I enjoyed it as a very dumb summer blockbuster. Thank you for joining us. Please join us again next month for another horror film review. Until next time. <laughs> Until next time. The Brothers Grimmer is a production of the Piwacket Podcast Network, all rights reserved. Our music is by Charlie Duggan, age eight. Charlie will not be permitted to listen to this podcast until he is 18 years old. that opening credit sequence from scooby-doo that scared the shit out of me oh i love that was like me i would see that sequence as a six or seven year old it's just the bats leaving the belfry or whatever i would just give me joy (laughs) (laughs) also the uh the the cover of your monster mash album scared the shit out of me oh i love that thing too oh i loved it the vampire leaping out of the grave with like a puff of uh, dust and smoke. Yeah, that scared me very, very much. That's a great cover. It is, it's somewhere at our parents' house. But I remember watching Scooby-Doo. This is pre-videotape. So at day camp, when it was raining one time, they took out a projector and a screen and we watched Scooby-Doo, a Scooby-Doo film. They actually had it on film. That's great. Also, whenever Vincent Price was advertising his shrunken apple core heads. Oh, which I always wanted. That scared the shit out of me. That was scary, yes. But he had his uh, series. Remember, there was an after-school Vincent Price weekday show, wasn't there? Like Svengoolie or Elvira? Like Count Floyd? The Hilarious House of Breitenstein. Maybe if I found a YouTube clip of it, I would recognize it. 1971. The scary and silly goings-on at a mad scientist vampire's home lab. (laughs) And then you can say, until next time. Until next time. (laughs) Until next time. Until next time. (laughs) 
No, that's good. Then you don't have to say it again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. I want to give you lots of takes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Choose the best one of all these until next time.